Singapore and to our audience from Europe and the Middle East, good afternoon. And to those tuning in from the US, good morning. My name is Clemens Che, a research fellow at the Middle East Institute here in Singapore. And on behalf of MEI, I welcome you all to our webinar. We are delighted today to have with us three distinguished speakers on today's panel discussion entitled Between Cooperation and Confrontation. Has the US renounced the Carter Doctrine? All three of our guest speakers have been kind enough to accept our invitation to grace today's event at an early hour for all of them at around 8 a.m. In, in Washington, D.C. right now. So they are, as you can see on your screens, they are David DeRoche, Elena DeLogia, and Kenneth Kasman. And I'll be telling you more about their illustrious careers in a short while. So about the topic, as the United States exits from Afghanistan on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, today our panel will be reflecting on the outlook for US policy in the Middle East, touching on the Persian Gulf as well, and more broadly covering the longer term reverberations of a recalibration in US foreign policy. Just last weekend, following the Iraqi Prime Minister's visit to Washington, the Pentagon announced that there will be no US military forces in a combat role by the end of the year in Iraq. We will also ask our speakers then, how can we make sense of President Jimmy Carter's four decade old pledge to prevent, and I quote, any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region, unquote. The big question then follows, is President Biden attempting to untie himself from the Carter Doctrine? So today we have with us three prominent speakers to tackle these questions. First, let me introduce Associate Professor David DeRoche at the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies, or in short, NESA, NESA, at the National Defense University, where he specializes in the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, their regional security, border security, weapons transfers, missile defense, counterinsurgency, and terrorism. He joined NASA in 2011 after serving the Office of the Secretary of Defense for policy, for policy in numerous positions, including as Director of the Gulf and Arabian Peninsula. The DOD liaison to the Department of Homeland Security. He was also Senior Country Director for Pakistan, NATO Operations Director, Deputy Director for Peacekeeping, and the Spokesman for the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. Prior to that, he served in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy as an international law enforcement analyst and special assistant for strategy. Professor De Roche has lectured at the Qatari Staff College, the, Star the Saudi War College, and is the author of numerous articles and chapters on Gulf security. He is also the editor of the Arms Trade, Military Services, and the Security Market in the Gulf Trends and Implication published by Gulak in 2016. Also with us today, and give me great pleasure to introduce Ms. Elena Deloja, who is the Rubin Family Fellow in the Bernstein, Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where she specializes in Yemen, the Gulf states, and nuclear weapons and proliferation. She's also an adjunct assistant professor in the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University. She was in the Middle East from 2011 to 2018 as a political analyst, analyst and trainer, including six years in the Gulf and two years in Lebanon. 
While abroad, she founded the Sage Institute for Foreign Affairs to train political analysts and make political analysis more accessible. She has taught graduate courses on nuclear proliferation, Gulf politics, and counterterrorism at New York University and Khalifa University at Abu Dhabi. From 2006 to 2010, she served as the right hand to the commissioner of the NYPD Counterterrorism Bureau, as well as an intelligence analyst on nuclear issues and on Al-Qaeda. She started her career at the Brookings Institution. So welcome, Elena. And last but not least, we have, we have today Dr. Kenneth Katzman, who serves as a senior Middle East analyst for the US Congress with special emphasis on Iran, the Persian Gulf states, Afghanistan, and Iran-backed groups operating in the region and South Asia. He provides expert reports, some of which I've, I've read in, with great interest, briefings and analysis to senior government officials and members of Congress. Dr. Katzman has participated in several congressional delega delegations to the Middle East and has testified before various committees and subcommittees on numerous occasions. Prior to joining the CRS, the Congressional Research Service, he served as an analyst at the CIA. His work has been featured in various publications, including a book entitled The Warriors of Islam, Iran's Revolutionary Council, published by Westview Press in 1993. Revolutionary Guard. Yep, Revolutionary Guard. Excuse me. He holds a PhD in political science from New York University in 1991. And for this event, he'll be speaking in personal capacity. So before we begin on with our discussion, house rules to, to begin with, uh, for our audience, if you have any questions, please put forward your questions in the Zoom chat box. You can type them. We'll be, we'll be following a, a dialogue format for today. So we'll be firing questions at our three speakers and going back and forth. So we shall now begin our discussion by zooming in on the US role in the Middle East. Given the recent news, it appears that the driving rationale for the Carter Doctrine is obsolete, but the US still plays an important role. So given the lower appetite, lowered appetite for foreign entanglements, can or will countries in the region, apart from Israel, still look to the US as a security guarantor? That's our first big question of the day, and we shall start with our first speaker, Dave. Dave, the floor is yours. Thank you, Clemens. Uh, and I just want to point out, uh, as for the uh, small disagreement between you and Ken, the uh, Revolutionary Guard and Revolutionary Council are becoming <laughs> one and the same. So perhaps we're just prescient. Um, it's an honor to be here. I have to point out that my remarks also do not reflect the views of the U.S. government. This is my contact information. Um, and I tweet out uh, all of Elena's and Ken's stuff. So if you want to follow them, uh, that's a good way to do it. There's my Twitter. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Carter Doctrine, going back to base sources. And the reason is, uh, there's this concept known as accretion. Um, as time goes on, things are either uh, gain substance, gain uh, issues, uh, like we all have gained weight in COVID, uh, and basically they're assumed to mean more than they actually mean, either because of practice or because of assumptions. And I think that's the case with the Carter Doctrine. So let's, uh, I think it'll be illustrative uh, and a good basis of discussion if we go back and look at what the Carter Doctrine actually is and what it has meant in practice in the past, because I think that's not uh, properly understood. Next slide, please. 
So when the Carter Doctrine was enunciated, uh, this was pretty much the U.S. view of the world. Everything north of that red line was hostile. Those were the bad guys. And, uh, you know, the National Security Advisor at the time, Big News Brzezinski, uh, you know, was a Polish emigre who had a very hard line view. And what he saw was an expansive Soviet Union that was seeking particularly to acquire access to the uh, warm water ports and the oil resources of the Persian Gulf. So they were already pretty close there, of course, within living memory. And uh, the time of the Carter Doctrine is roughly within five or 10 years from you know, from us as the uh, end of World War II was to the Carter administration, the Soviet Union had occupied northern Iran and, uh, you know, the U.S. and Britain occupied southern Iran. At the end of the war, the U.S. and Britain left. The Soviet Union did not initially leave, and it took uh, some bare knuckles negotiations of a kind that the U.S. was able to pull off when we were the only nuclear power in the world to get them to leave. There was actually, you know, talks of setting up a separate Soviet uh, state in uh, uh, in Gulistan. So this was the worldview that um, was prevalent during the when the Carter Doctrine was enunciated. Next slide, please. Of course, then you had the Iranian Revolution, and nobody knew which way that would go. But again, you know, we look at it with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, but I think that in both the um, uh, the overthrow of um, the Iranian Revolution in the fifties and the overthrow here, the big concern animating U.S. Uh, policy uh, was not uh, Islam, was not an independent uh, Iran. It wasn't even an Iran that was. Uh, you know, socialist, but not allied with the Soviet Union the way, so for example, Yugoslavia was. It was that uh, this revolution was just a cat's paw for a communist takeover that would give all of this there. And that fear was constantly in the background. And again, bear in mind, the National Security Advisor was a Polish emigrant, you know, so he had kind of seen how this plays out in places like Czechoslovakia, where, you know, you had uh, initially a democratic government that was then overthrown. So there was a concern about that. That happened, you know, as we know, in the fall of 1979 was when the embassy takeover happened. And that really clarified the mind. Uh, here we had evidence of something hostile that was beyond our ability to control and to a certain extent beyond our ability to understand. Next slide, please. Then in December of 1979, you had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And if you were already predisposed to see things in this, you looked at this and said, whoa, what have we got now? We've got the Red Army, and it is within uh, one and a half days driving through a pretty uh, desolate, you know, deserted, uh, not very well-populated province of Baluchistan, uh, you know, most of which had, you know, within the last 10 years belonged to Oman. Uh, they're close to achieving their objectives. So there was a very real fear. And unfortunately, this coincided, you know, this was six years after the key shift where the U.S. went from a petroleum exporting country to petroleum importing country and the oil shocks of 1973 in the wake of the war. So when you see this situation here, you don't see uh, a threat of uh, localized uh, uh, control. You don't see a threat of uh, local revolutions. What you see is monolithic communism impinging on countries that are newly independent, that are very fragile, that don't have well-developed militaries or state institutions. And that's the worldview that uh, was 
animating the declaration of the Carter Doctrine. Um, this is not the threat we're looking at today, and it's important to bear that in mind. So to a certain extent, the Carter Doctrine was enunciated in an environment that is just not the environment we're in now. So, you know, it, it is a fair case to make that the U.S. isn't renouncing the Carter Doctrine. Rather, the situation has changed, and the Carter Doctrine just is not a useful tool for the situation we face. Next slide, please. This is President Carter when he enunciated this. Now, the Carter Doctrine is not a military strategy, a government document, uh, a treaty. It was something he said at the State of the Union address. And, uh, you know, we've just lived through four years of President Trump's State of the Union addresses. And I can assure you that, uh, you know, if those four years didn't tell you anything, it's well, what a president says at the State of Union address uh, can be superseded by the next president at the State of the Union address. So over time, the Carter Doctrine has accreted, that word again, uh, to be something more than just a presidential utterance into a pillar of U.S. national security. And I think that, uh, you know, precedent does have some weight, but this idea that it is uh, on a par with, say, Article 5 of the NATO Treaty is mistaken. And in practice, I think a lot of Middle East analysts do treat it as the equivalent of Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. Next slide, please. So let's talk about when it was exercised. And of course, the most notable exercise was the uh, mobilization of US forces to expel Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. Um, it is not generally recognized just what a closely run decision that was. Um, if Saddam had done it a year later, about half of the US forces there would not have existed. They were units that were um, being demobilized in Germany. And indeed, uh, some of these units, a lot of these units returned from Desert Storm to Germany and then demobilized, cased their colors and evaporated. Uh, the vote in the Senate to go to war was 52 to 47. And a number of important senators opposed uh, going to war to restore Kuwait. Uh, the gentleman you see in the upper right-hand corner is Sam Nunn. He was considered to be uh, one of the top rank of potential Democratic candidates for president in the early 1990s. Uh, he was a Democrat, but he was considered to be hawkish on defense issues. That, uh, in the thinking of the time, the, the charge against the Democrats was that they were uh, uh, somehow soft on defense, and that's what led to the loss of Southeast Asia, the betrayal of the Vietnamese. And in those times, you know, we were concerned with boat people arriving from Vietnam. Um, he was considered to be sort of immune to all of that, but he voted against uh, the invasion of Kuwait. And as a result, he, he stood, he basically um, was not viewed as a viable candidate for the 1992 presidential primaries, which uh, uh, initially folks thought was unwinnable for Democrats. So he stepped aside, Bill Clinton uh, took a gamble and it paid off. The two senators below, also opposed it. And they were two of the most important senators. The first on the left is Joe Biden, um, speaking as a bald man. Uh, and Clemens, you might appreciate this. It's interesting to note he has less hair in 1992 than he has now. I don't know how that worked out. To his right is Edward Kennedy, who was considered to be a front runner uh, for the Democratic uh, uh, presidential nomination. And, and if Buicks floated better, probably would have been. Uh, he later challenged President Carter for the presidency. And uh, a lot of people think that if he had not done that, Carter might have been able to hold off Ronald Reagan. But it was a closely run decision. And the woman you see here testified very emotionally laden about seeing 
uh, babies taken out of incubators, put on the floor in hospitals in Kuwait. Uh, later on, it, it was discovered that she was actually the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to Washington. And it has become uh, on the left, uh, on, the, on the fringes of the left, an article of faith that her testimony was uh, false and uh, was coached by the uh, consultancy firm of Hill and Knowlton and used just to sway that vote. So the point of this is it was a very closely run decision. We now have this idea amongst ourselves that any invasion of a GCC state leads to an automatic US response under the Carter Doctrine, but that is not the case. Next slide, please. Uh, this is, uh, shows uh, Bahrain in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring was really the second test for the Carter Doctrine. And what happened was um, you had protests amongst all of uh, the Arab states, uh, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, mostly to a lesser extent in the Gulf with the exception of Bahrain. Um, this was a true shocking moment for the GCC folks because they saw the United States turn on, in their telling, turn on uh, Hosni Mubarak uh, just because a couple hundred thousand hippies were hanging out and tweeting each other in Cairo. And uh, in discussions with senior leaders, uh, many of whom don't speak English, uh, it's remarkable that they all use the same Arab, the same phrase in English, threw Mubarak under the bus. Uh, the test for this was in Bahrain. And, uh, you know, I don't think Bahrain ever formally applied for help, but it was clear that... Um, while the Bahraini protests were the results were, I believe, the cause of internal problems, they were uh, challenged and have been, or they were championed by Iran, uh, held a conference in Tehran explicitly calling for the overthrow of the royal family. And since then, there have been um, numerous seizures of Iranian weapons and agents in Bahrain. Uh, the picture on the lower left is the result of one of those seizures with explosives and narcotics weapons. Um, uh, IEDs, you can see that to the lower right of the yellow thing there, there are copper plates for off-road IEDs, which have been exported from Iran uh, to uh, Bahrain. Um, you know, yet the United States doesn't take uh, action against those. You know, they call for the Carter Doctrine, but basically the enunciation of the Carter Doctrine uh, that our Gulf partners got was well, we are committed to preserving your integrity against overt invasion. We are not committed to your regime and you need to embrace democratic reform. Of course, the response to that is what you see in the lower right-hand corner. This is the Saudi National Guard moving over the causeway into Bahrain um, and the initial um, uh, mass protests were contained uh, by the Bahraini security forces while the uh, Saudi National Guard was in uh, a reserve position elsewhere on the island. Next slide, please. The third test I'm going to talk about is, of course, the attacks on oil refineries in Abqaiq. And uh, I know that our Saudi uh, partners were very, very concerned by this and were expecting some sort of kinetic response, basically, uh, you know, a similar drone or, and or missile attack against Iranian infrastructure. When that didn't come, um, there was much muttering, and you can read it in the Saudi press, the Arab press, and in English language analyst press about how the Carter Doctrine has been renounced. You know, we're not doing the Carter Doctrine. Uh, there had, of course, been, uh, there are now reports that there had been an aggressive cyber operation against uh, Iranian infrastructure, uh, which paralyzed large portions of the Saudi grid. But, you know, it's not the same thing. And, and um, uh, whatever we know in our minds, cerebrally, viscerally, um, somehow uh, cyber is not seen as manly 
as uh, missiles and bombs. And uh, so I can tell you that, well, we all know that there was a lot of uh, discussion of the, the Carter Doctrine, has it been renounced? So let's move to the next slide and read it what the Carter Doctrine actually is. This is what President Carter said at the State of the Union Address. Um, I'll give you about 10 seconds to read it. Okay, next slide. So I highlighted what I think are the key what, what I think are the key elements here in red. The first thing is that the Carter Doctrine was only against an outside force. So um, if you take it at its face, uh, that would uh, exclude, for example, Iran. Uh, now, why did he say outside force? I think it's pretty clear that what, he, what it was concerned about was the Soviet Union. Um, and so arguably, uh, anything that comes from within, and this argument was made at the debate over whether or not the United States would uh, restore Kuwait from Saddam Hussein, uh, well, that wasn't an outside force. And I think that that's part of the reason why the vote was so close. Uh, this next one is to gain control. Uh, gain control... Uh, you know, would isolate things like uh, small seizure, you know, would exclude things like small seizures of weapons uh, landed on Bahrain, which the Revolutionary Guard has done, uh, attacks uh, against, uh, you know, infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, which we've seen uh, over and over again. Um, it seems to call for a higher threshold of military action on the lines of an overt invasion. Uh, or an attempted coup. Uh, so uh, I think that there is a threshold there, which uh, over the years we've kind of glossed over as because of accretion in our minds. And then the final point that I highlighted, which was by any means necessary. Um, and I can tell you that our security partners, when there is a security threat, they expect to see it uh, matched with uh, overt military force, aircraft carriers, airplanes, and uh, tanks. Uh, but uh, the Carter Doctrine, even at the height of the Cold War, um, was heavily caveated and includes all the elements of national security. So I just wanted to set that out at the start. Uh, my, my point is that the Carter Doctrine is not what we think it is uh, in common usage, and that uh, arguably American policy is still consistent with the Carter Doctrine. Um, the question is, uh, are we really talking about the right thing or should we um, focus on issues uh, of national security and national interest that we face now and look to something else and relegate this uh, to the world of historiography? So with that, next slide. I will, um, having served as the amuse uh, bouche, the small uh, pre-course for the main courses, I will lead you to my two capable colleagues and uh, hope that there will be one or two questions that uh, I can answer for you. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. And I think you, you outlined perfectly uh, you know, the, the tenets of the Carter Doctrine and, and how it is still consistent, in, but in different circumstances. And we'll hold on to that thought until we, we come back for further questions. Uh, you talked a bit about national interests, and I, I have in mind also other questions about military capacity versus capabilities, and, but we'll come back to that again. So uh, before we, we come back to, to other questions, uh, let me hand over to Elena Delosier uh, to, to talk a bit about the Carter Doctrine as well, and how, how it touches on uh, the Persian Gulf affairs. Elena. Sure, so I'll just make some introductory comments, but then the Q&A will be 
um, you guys can let us know what, what you're most interested in hearing about. But I think um, from my perspective, thank you, first of all, to David for laying that history out. There is no one better to, to do that for us. And I think that history is really important. Um, if we think about how people think about the Carter Doctrine today, what they're really saying is, um, uh, is that they feel as though the U.S. is sort of psychologically withdrawing from the Middle East. And as part of that kind of psychological withdrawal, the concern is, you know, who provides security to the Gulf states, who provides security for oil exports, that kind of thing. I think David's point is apt that the, the looming threat is no longer the Soviet Union, but is a state that sits right on the, the Persian or Arabian Gulf, Iran. So that it's just the circumstances are just totally different today than they were um, at the time of the, the literal Carter Doctrine. But really the insecurity comes from this idea that the US is sort of psychologically withdrawing. And I say psychologically because, um, the, you know, the U.S. still has significant military equipment. It's not like we've left, you know, Al-Dafar Air Base or we've left Al-Udaid in, in um, Qatar. Uh, and so, you know, physically, we still have a military presence, we being the U.S. in the region, but, um, but there is sort of a psychological withdrawal. And that's been happening for a long time. I mean, this is a post-Iraq war sort of malaise and a fatigue of the Middle East and all of that. And so it happened not only under the Obama administration, but then Trump and now still under under Biden. Uh, and the Gulf states have really reacted to that. Um, they felt this for a long time. I mean, when I moved to the Middle East in uh, right when the Arab Spring was breaking out, I mean, this was already a conversation at that time. Uh, and so the Gulf states have reacted to that, at least some of them by sort of deciding that they need to protect themselves a bit. Uh, so you've seen the UAE moving into the Red Sea a little bit more. Now that's changed in the last six months and we can talk about that in more detail, but essentially there's been this idea by the Saudis and the Emiratis that we need to protect the Western flank of the Arabian Peninsula sort of ourselves. Um, and so there's been a lot more activity in the Red Sea. Uh, and then there's also been a lot of consternation over the fact that Iran hit a facility in uh, Saudi Arabia, an oil facility, uh, Abqaiq, and the U.S. didn't respond in the way the Gulf states would have preferred. And so that that creates kind of that's where this conversation about the Carter Doctrine comes up. Like, oh, is the U.S. no longer protecting the Arab Gulf states? Do they have to be on their own and protect themselves? And they're asking themselves those questions. Uh, and then finally, I would just say the Yemen war is another example of where this kind of comes up because, you know, we, uh, the United States sold weapons to the Gulf states for, you know, something like 70 years. And for the most part, they never used them. I did my, my graduate work in the early 2000s on Saudi Arabia, and there's a line in my, uh, my thesis, um, which about three people have probably read, um, <laughs> Uh, in which I say something like uh, Saudi Arabia is said to have more planes than pilots, meaning that they literally bought more aircraft from us than they had trained pilots. And this was this was in the 80s and the 90s. And so the idea was they used to just buy tons of equipment, but they never used it. And the Yemen war is an example of where one of the Gulf states decided to use the equipment that the U.S. gave them and and um uh and enact a war in a country that, and and not really give the u.s much advance notice and so 
Um, uh, and so there, that's created a real dilemma for the United States that we just haven't really had to deal with before. And the question is, as we quote unquote psychologically withdraw and the Gulf states decide to take care of security on their own, they're going to do that in their own ways. And you start to have conversations about, well, they're not you know, NATO capable. So we don't mind France going into a place like Mali because we know France is going to you know, follow NATO-like rules. But when Saudi goes into Yemen, we're not sure that Saudi has the same rules of engagement that the United States would have. And yet they're using our weapons that are stamped, you know, made in the USA. And so these are the these are dilemmas that we just genuinely haven't had to deal with uh, before. Uh, and this is this is kind of what happens when you start to withdraw from a region is is the chess pieces sort of move around a little bit. And I think that we're we're all trying to figure out kind of what to what to do with that. And of course, there's a whole conversation in the the Gulf, which probably my colleagues can talk about more than me, but about creating some sort of um, NATO-like might be too strong of a word, but some sort of system where there is consistent rules of engagement. I'm not sure with the, the Gulf Rift, which is you know allegedly over, but still simmering underneath, I'm not sure that that's going to necessarily happen overnight. And so this dilemma you know, is going to continue to exist and it's something that, that we're really grappling with. Thanks, Elena. And, and we'll come back to a few questions on Yemen and the Red Sea. Uh, but now I'd like to pass it on to Kenneth to tell us a bit more about, you know, Kenneth has written a you know, million congressional reports, I guess. And, and, <laughs> and, and I, I'd like to ask, you know, really, you know, across the different presidencies, you know, the, in the US, how, how could we make sense of President Biden's current policies towards the Middle East? And, and, and there was some talk about, you know, this being an Obama 2.0. And of course there was mm -hmm. discontent among the Gulf states, you know, about, about the nuclear, Iran's nuclear program and how President Obama handled it at the time. So, so how do we make sense of President Biden's current policies? Thank you. Uh... Well, it's refreshing not to talk about Iran sanctions for once, but, uh, 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 you know, it, it's an evolution. I mean, what I would say about the Carter Doctrine is let's let's remember Jimmy Carter was being accused of of being weak and vacillating on foreign policy. The Shah fell while he was, you know, president and. There was there was a tendency to to, you know, want to look strong and to counter that criticism and. Uh, and uh, we had the invasion of Afghanistan, which the United States was really not positioned to to respond to. The Soviet Union was uh, the Cold War was on. The Soviet Union was uh, viewed as on the march at the time. So really, the environment is is quite different. The, the, the threats to the Gulf have, have now shifted from outside the Gulf to within the Gulf. Uh, Saddam Hussein. You know, uh, he, he basically won the Iran-Iraq war with some degree of U.S. help. Let's not forget that. Um, and he proceeded to build very large weapons of mass destruction programs. And when he invaded Kuwait, there was a real fear in the United States that uh, the United States could get into a war that could be uh, quite deadly for United States soldiers. 
Um, and so I think that could explain perhaps, you know, uh, that there was not uh, a big cascade to go to go to war to push Saddam out of Kuwait. But uh, President Bush <clears throat> made the decision to go and, uh, and it ultimately was successful. But that was not a given, you know, when the war started. Um, so there was some trepidations about having that war to begin with, but it did work out, obviously. Now, with uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, Saddam was removed. Iraq is sort of fragmented, very weak militarily, not, not a strategic factor in, in the Gulf anymore. But Iran uh, is emerging as uh, quite, a, quite a potent regional power. Um, I've written about this. I've talked about this. Iran's missile force is the largest in the Middle East. Uh, we've talked about the strike on uh, Abqaiq, which was, uh, you know, re demonstrated remarkable precision beyond what the United States had thought Iran was capable of. Uh, that precise and that devastating a strike, uh, as we've said, the United States didn't respond, which got the Saudis, uh, you know, even more nervous. Um, so where are we now? You're asking, you know, uh, I mean, it's an it's an evolution. Um, the United States and, and I, I would date that evolution very starkly to uh, President George W. Bush's decision to invade Iraq. Uh, very controversial. It was motivated in large part by the 9-11 attacks and the need to respond forcefully or the perceived need. Um, <clears throat> I would argue did not work out. I would argue was uh, a tremendous strategic blunder on many levels. Uh, it, it basically opened the door for Iran to have preponderant influence inside Iraq. Uh, there were no weapons of mass destruction discovered. Um, <clears throat> the UNSCOM weapons inspectors had basically taken Saddam's WMD away so that they, there were none left. Um, paved the way in some, in some measure for the evolution that, that led to the formation of the Islamic State organization. Uh, so on, on every level you slice it, that invasion was, was problematic uh, and, and the American public reacted to it. I think in a lot of these discussions, we often talk about the president and the Congress and the, the, the leadership of the United States. <laughs> But I like to attribute where we are now to the American public. The American public really has soured on the Middle East. I think we have to face facts. Uh, the United States is not as dependent on Middle East oil as we used to be. The United States is, is economically getting away from particularly crude oil. Um, less so natural gas, but that will evolve too. Um, I, as I've said, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was viewed as a, as a strategic blunder with a lot of consequences that were the American public did not like. Um, the the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has sort of taken a backseat. The American public is not as, uh, you know, perhaps hungry for a solution, uh, American brokered solution, as it may, may have been 20, 25 years ago. Um, the United States has invested enormous diplomatic capital trying to resolve that conflict as well as uh, other conflicts in the region without any, any real clear results. And so the American public is asking, what have we gotten for all this investment in the Middle East? What, what, what has been the result? Um, is this worth it? 
Uh, is it worth it to be as invested in the Gulf and the Middle East as, as it was viewed, you know, 25 years ago? Uh, but, you know, you still see, uh, just, to, just to button it up, uh, you still see elements of the Carter Doctrine peeking out occasionally. Um, you know, the Russians have tried to sell or are negotiating to sell S-400 air defense, and the United States has actually a sanctions law, the CATSA law against that, and there's been threats of perhaps invoking that law if they do turn to the, to the Russians for certain arms. There were trepidations about Russian and Chinese influence in UAE as pertaining to the F-35 sale that the Trump administration concluded. So you do, you do see peaking out, you know, uh, not necessarily U.S. effort to maintain some hegemony in the Gulf, but, you know, a, a concern about other great powers muscling into the Gulf. And, and the United States does try to to keep them out uh, for its own, own strategic reasons. So even though the Carter Doctrine may not be operable anymore, you, you still do see some uh, green shoots, uh, you know, still referring to it or, or uh, paying homage to it in some way uh, in terms of keeping great power, other great powers out of the Gulf. And I think I'll button it up right there. Thanks. Thanks, Kenneth, that's great. Um, I've got my next question, really. I mean, we've got a couple of questions that came in, uh, and I'll tie this with my, my next question as a sub-part, and I'll distribute it to, to all three speakers. Uh, to, to Dave, uh, I mean, to all three speakers first, you know, is this really about right-sizing versus retrenchment? You know, where, where is the U.S. leaning in, you know, in this terms of these two terms? And for Dave, I'll add on another question about how if you want, I mean, if, if the U.S. would right-size its forces in the in the in the region, how how would it do it? Uh, Elena, uh, adding one more question to your plate is, you know, what is the threat perception and the Red Sea, which is probably your your expertise? And to Kenneth, um, in the in the recent Quincy Institute report, there appears to be you know uh, an argument that that you know the Middle East interventionism is also con is also done by conducted by you know, the US partners and allies in the region. So what do you make of it? So I think we'll start with uh, Dave, over to you. Okay, all right, good, oh, I'm not muted. Okay, well, thank you, that's a good question. So uh, right-sizing versus retrenchment, yeah. It's a good point. Um, you know, uh, the US uh, uh, viewed, well, we have to take it in context. So when we were fighting major wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, it behooved us to have a large presence in the Gulf uh, to support those wars. And part of that reason is because we generally have very favorable agreements uh, for basing that uh, uh, our partners in the Gulf subsidized a lot of our operations. Uh, they signed the agreements assuming that if we had forces there, it'd be there to protect them. And we actually were running expeditionary operations. So, um, you know, the planes that I, the plane that I flew to a war in Afghanistan in where we conducted air to air refueling from planes that were based in the UAE. Um, uh, when those wars wind down, the force structure uh, abandons. That's one point. The second point is there is a high density or high demand, low density problem across the US military. Certain capabilities, Patriot missile, THAAD, um, uh, strike aircraft, uh, those are, we need those everywhere. And if we have them committed to one specific theater, the problem is uh, folks tend to view that as my group. 
you know, my Thad battery, my Patriot battery. And that really gives us a problem. We, we'd like to rotate that equipment around. We'd like to have it available for global deployment. And we'd like to have the soldiers uh, who enlist in that to have a predictable life cycle uh, where they can actually plan on spending some time at Fort Bliss or Fort Sill, which is where they're going to be if they're Patriot crew members, uh, instead of constantly, you know, missing graduations, being sent off to these remote bases. The third point is our bases in the U.S. have never been like our bases in Europe. Uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and, you know, you could see Army recruiting things that basically said, join the Army and we'll send you to Germany. Um, nobody joins the Army to be stationed on, a, on an air base, you know, uh, you know at El Dafra Air Base, where you're not allowed off the base, uh, you know, very often. Um, that's, that's very, very unpleasant. And there is, uh, you know, this idea that we're kind of breaking the force. Um, that's kind of letting up a little bit. Uh, the Qataris in particular, you know, by building family housing at El Dafra Air Base, uh, I'm sorry, El Udid rather, uh, you know, they want to have more of the kind of Germany situation, but we'll never quite be there. So I think that just from a force management perspective, it makes sense to downsize from the Middle East. Then there's the military perspective, which is a lot of our force lay down along the Gulf was there uh, presuming an invasion from the north that would be repulsed. But if the threat is from Iran, which is across the Gulf, which is just on the other side of the Strait of Hormuz, it doesn't make sense to have all your infrastructure there where ships have to transit the Strait of Hormuz to get it. It makes more sense to have them on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula, in Jordan, places like that, where you can reinforce and then move out. So there's a lot of reasons for this that are you know, logistic, technical, technical um, but unfortunately, uh, they all acquire a political dimension because everything is seen as our Patriot battery, you know, and, and the, the big case in point is the Patriot that was deployed to Saudi Arabia after the Abqaiq attack. We hadn't had Patriot in Saudi Arabia since 20, 2003. Uh, we deployed them temporarily in 2019. Uh, and when they're withdrawn, that kind of becomes a big issue. It's like, well, what about the other 16 years? So that's the problem. Thanks, Dave. Over to you, Elena, about this right-sizing versus retrenchment, plus the, the, the Red Sea issue and, and the threat perceptions over there. Well, in the military questions, I'll leave that to the military guys, but I can talk about the Red Sea. So um, I, you know, the Red Sea is kind of, uh, if we think of the, the Gulf on the one side of the Arabian Peninsula, the Red Sea is on the other side, and there's, you know, three choke points in the region. You've got the Strait of Hormuz, which we talk about a lot on that eastern side, but on the western side, you've got the Suez Canal and the Bab el Mendeb. So, you know, three major checkpoint choke points rather in the in the region. Um, two of them on the Red Sea, and you know, the attention paid to the Red Sea is really ramping up, uh, and that's for lots of reasons, some of which are economic. I would say in large part, it's driven by economics, but as a result of everybody sort of coming there and everybody, I mean, that you've got uh, four or five countries based in Djibouti, many of whom then also have, for example, their British troops at the US um, uh, base. And that, so there's a bunch of countries in Djibouti, you've got China and Russia poking around, Turkey's poking around. Um, and so when you have sort of all these kind of global and regional powers all coming to the same location, you're bound to have uh, folks thinking, seeing security threats, you know, um, around them. And so 
the threat perception in the Red Sea uh, uh, is high, not only because of that, because everybody is sort of there and kind of wary of each other, um, but also because there's a series of security issues in the Red Sea from migration and refugee issues to, you know, piracy is a little bit more mild these days, but there's terrorism threats in Somalia, there's um, undersea internet cables uh, that can potentially be cut and have been cut previously. Um, uh, and you've got this Iranian ship uh, called the Tsavis, although I think at some point they were going to switch it out. But anyway, there's an Iranian ship right off the coast of Yemen that folks worry about. Uh, and so there's just a whole bunch of different issues that are kind of coming up in the Red Sea, and those things aren't going to go away because there's a lot of attention in that area. Um, the East African states that are on the western side of the Red Sea are sort of up and coming from GDP growth. Uh, their GDP growth rates are high, their populations are, are large, and so these are potential future markets. Um, and you've got the UAE, Turkey, China, and other countries investing in infrastructure in order to make these markets accessible. And so again, all this attention is gonna continue to be in this area. Uh, and I know that the US military thinks a lot about these issues because having those choke points accessible is really critical. Uh, and so we talk about the Strait of Hormuz all the time, but there's just as much attention focused on the Suez and the Bab al-Mendeb um, and with Yemen on one side and Somalia on the other of the Babel Mendeb, it's it's kind of that's that's a point of of concern for just about everybody. Thanks, Elena, for sharing. Uh, Kenneth, over to you um, and on Middle East interventionism and whether it's also uh, conducted by by you know the U.S. partners and allies in the region. Well, I mean, on the issue of right sizing, uh, that's that's a matter of circumstance, right? I mean, you know, you know, the United States was trying, uh, the Obama administration was trying to draw down, the Trump administration was trying to draw down in the Gulf, and then what happened? Iran has emerged as a what I would argue is a very significant power. Uh, you know, again, I talked about missiles. Uh, they're they're also building up their navy with their own capabilities, their own uh, construction, um, you know, weapons programs. Uh, they have tremendous reach in the region now. Iran is not just a power in the Gulf. It is now a, a power in, in the, you know, the western side of the Arabian Peninsula and the Mediterranean. Uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, Alana talked about the, the Iranian ship off Yemen. Uh, Iran is, Iran's Proxies, Iran's allies—not proxies necessarily, the Houthis—but their 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 allies uh, have basically defeated Saudi. I mean, Saudi Arabia has basically lost the war in Yemen. I think we have to admit that, and uh, Iran's allies have basically uh, essentially won that war. And uh, and Iran has a, has a presence. Uh, Iran is not withdrawing from Syria anytime soon. Uh, Iran is not abandoning Hezbollah anytime soon. So Iran, Iran has tremendous reach in the region that it did not have, I would argue, 10, 15 years ago. And it, and it is a very, very significant power. What that means in terms of the United States is that if, the, if there was an intent to draw away from the Gulf, probably the United States is going to have to re-engage uh, you know, in the Gulf to balance out Iran, uh, to, to be positioned to deter Iran. Remember, now Israel and Iran are in, uh, I would argue, a shadow war that I've written about uh, with the Sufan Center. 
um, Israel is now to some extent in the Gulf. We have the Abraham Accords with the UAE, Bahrain, uh, and we had the tanker, the, the attack, uh, the Iranian drone attack just a few days ago. So, uh, you know, when Israel is threatened, there, there is a tendency of the United States to, to want to uh, help Israel and help defend it and help, uh, you know, strategically uh, go against any, any enemies of Israel. So that is inevitably going to cause the United States to remain positioned in the Gulf. And I would argue perhaps even re rebuild up in the Gulf uh, to counter Iran. Uh, the Allies, uh, you know, they're a factor. They have bases, UAE, Qatar, other Kuwait. Um, you know, but as we've seen in Afghanistan, they tend to follow the U.S. lead. Uh, if the U.S. leaves, they leave. If the U.S. engages, they engage. Um, you know, they're a factor. Uh, I, I don't know that they're necessarily decisive strategically in the Gulf. Uh, you know, they, they are partners of the United States, obviously. The British still have, you know, a certain amount of uh, sway over, you know, the Sultanate of Oman. And uh, the French are positioned in UAE, as I mentioned. The French have sold a lot of weaponry to Qatar. Um, so they're positioned, but I, I don't necessarily see them as decisive uh, in, in a way that I see the decisions of the American, whatever U.S. administration is in office as, as decisive in Gulf policy. Thanks, Kenneth. I, I want to go back to Elena on, on the Yemen file um, and, and how, and, and could you tell us how or, or if, you know, the U.S. has, has pressured um, Saudi Arabia into, into of course, you know, ending the war in, 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 in Yemen and how, or, or if, if any, um, you know, I think that the U.S. wanted to pressure Saudi into leaving the war, and I think some of that international pressure was effective in the UAE's choices to leave the war in Yemen, although that's not the whole story. Um, but I'm not sure U.S. pressure was that effective on Saudi. So for for years and years, the U.S. was basically saying, come on, let's let's try to find an end to this war. And the Saudis still thought that there was a military angle or a way of winning militarily. Um, you saw the shift in the Saudi position on Yemen after the Abqaiq attacks. So I think part of what happened there is that the attacks came from the north. Um, attacks were generally coming from the south, from Yemen prior to that. And so it was suddenly, I think it suddenly felt like we're being attacked from all sides. Um, right. You know, the, the military guys in the call can kind of talk more about this, but I think, you know, certain air defense systems kind of point one way. And so there's there's choices that are made about sort of what threat you're you're focused on. And they were very focused on threats coming, you know, drone and missiles and that kind of thing coming from Yemen and suddenly they came from somewhere else. And so there and and then as I mentioned before, the US response to that was in the Saudi view lacking. Uh, and so I think there was a real sense of wait a second, the the threat might actually in the in the region might actually be Iran. And what you saw after that is um, some patching up with Qatar started happening. Uh, and then also there was this switch in the the policy on Yemen. And suddenly it went from the Saudis looking for a military solution in Yemen to looking for a diplomatic solution. The problem right. with that is that the Houthis have 
largely have, have seen this happen, right? Like they've been watching it just as I'm talking about it. They've seen all the things that I've just said. And so I think the, the Houthis sort of smell desperation, right? In the sense that they, they see the Saudis now very much wanting to get out of the war. Uh, and the Houthis would love to not give the Saudis a way out, uh, and certainly not a face-saving way out. And so if we bring it up to kind of current day, um, you know, the Saudis are in a real pickle. They're not really able to put real military pressure on the Houthis in the way that they would like. There's lots of reasons for that. The UAE is not going to come right. in and do it. Um, right. The U.S. is not likely going to come in and do it, at least not in the near term. Uh, and so the Saudis are in a bit of a pickle and the Houthis won't let them out. Uh, and so they can't they're they're even offering more things publicly than they've ever offered before. And just the Houthis aren't taking it. Um, they aren't taking the deal uh, because the Houthis do think they can win militarily. And so we're sort of in this in this kind of impasse uh, in Yemen. And my view on Yemen is that we need to kind of rethink the singular focus on ceasefire and political agreement that we're sort of at a stage that we need to think a little bit more broadly about how we can build up some of the sort of muscles uh, around um, Sana'a. You know, the, the governance is, is, uh, is collapsing in Yemen all around Sana'a. And if you're a business person in Yemen, the lights are on in Sana'a and there's no electricity in Aden. So, you know, there, there's a real uh, difference between the governance and the, the various parts of Yemen. And I think that we need to focus a little bit more on creating the conditions for, for you know, sustainable governance essentially across the country, in addition to trying to find, you know, a way to end the war, but that's the, the war itself is at a bit of an, an impasse at the moment. Thanks, Elena. I think sustainable governance is, is of course, a, a long-term goal, as, as, as we've all seen in the other, other arenas of, of, of conflict. And, and we've got um, another question from the floor from uh, Yo Chen Zhi, on, and I think this question is best directed at Dave. Uh, have, US, have contemporary U.S. policymakers overweighted weapons transfers while underweighting broader security and development assistance? Yeah, good question. And it, it, short answer is yes, of course. Um, you know, I, when I was at the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, um, we had uh, three and a half floors. And uh, basically, the half floor dealt with everything other than big time weapon sales. Um, I used to joke that it should be called the FMSA for Foreign Military Sales Agency, if, if there was truth in advertising. Um, it's just easier. Um, uh, People are happier with it. There's a, a system. The locals want weapons. Uh, you know, our folks want them. But that being said, policymakers in the Department of Defense, Department of State, don't have responsibility for um, maintenance of the defense base. Uh, uh, you know, the way that, for example, a British. You know, I mean, if you read a British article about a weapons sale. Uh, the second paragraph will always say, you know, this weapon is produced in, you know, Lincolnshire by at this factory that employs 200 people. You generally don't see that in the United States. And I know that this sounds strange, uh, but I can tell you that um, in all my years in the Pentagon, 
we never had the you've got to make this sale because of the factory, you know, or because of jobs or something like that. The United States is because of our system of government with the Congress, you know, or different committees are only responsive to themselves and re departments are responsive to their committees. We don't have that joined up government. So it's it's not quite as sinister as people think. It's just what they ask for. Uh, people still have this 1930s merchants of death thing. Honestly, as a defense policymaker, that wasn't it. It's just that it's easier. Uh, it's easier to measure. You can measure aircraft and uh, rifles. It's hard to measure the effect of training and engagement. And what I do now, you know, lecturing the war college and stuff is that sort of soft engagement. But I can tell you that the metric of effectiveness for that, it, it, it hasn't been captured at Yale University and hasn't been captured at NDU. So it's just harder. So the answer is yes, but it's not as sinister as people commonly assume. Sorry for being so verbose there. Thanks, Steve. Uh, uh, we've got another question. I'll keep the questions coming, please, uh, to our audience. Uh, this, I guess, um, Kenneth, you can probably take it, is from uh, Bilal Al-Akras. So the, the, questions, the question is, what can we learn from the recent U.S. statement announced by Secretary Blinken that the U.S. will lead a collective response against Iran due to the latter's alleged involvement in an attack on an Israel-linked tanker in the Arabian Sea last week? Thank you. Well, you know, it, it's hard to predict what Mr. Biden might decide to do. Um, you know, the Iranians have conducted attacks like that before without necessarily a U.S. response. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think this this debate within the administration is being uh, fought out, so to speak, uh, in the issue of Iraq. Uh, you know, there, there are some officials who I think want to retaliate more frequently for the Iran-backed militia attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. There are others who say, you know, let's not get into a tit-for-tat with Iran inside Iraq, and the Iraqis don't want that. They don't want to be a battlefield. They don't want to be anymore the, the arena for the United States and Iraq to have a proxy war. And so they want to hang back and maybe, you know, do state building in Iraq, try to try to increase the effectiveness of Iraqi state power. And then hopefully Prime Minister Khadami hopefully would be reelected in October and would go go harder against the Iran-backed militias. So th there's a strategy, you know, debate, uh, <clears throat> you know, if the United States does retaliate militarily for this attack on the Israeli managed uh, tanker, you know, that Iran likely is going to respond. And so the debate is, do, do we want to get into this tit for tat with Iran anywhere, whether Iraq or the Gulf? At the same time, we're trying, the Biden administration is trying to get Iran back into the nuclear deal. And, and you know, if, if there's an escalation between the United States and, and Iran, uh, do, do, do those negotiations get derailed? These are the questions I think the uh, administration is wrestling with. I would mention it. what's interesting is the Ulfa brothers managed this tanker that was attacked. And actually in 2011, I believe they were put on a sanctions list for violating Iran sanctions, although they were quickly taken off when the Israelis presented information that they were not involved in, uh, you know, any type of illicit activity with Iran. So <clears throat> there may be a controversial history to, to that company too, but uh, 
you know, again, th these are questions the administration is wrestling with. Are we going to get into, uh, you know, a, a, a shooting match with Iran that is likely to escalate? Because the supreme leader, he is not really cowed by much. Uh, you know, he's a very tough guy. I've followed him since I started in this business. Uh, you know, he, he is not scared easily. And, uh, you know, he believes that the momentum is with Iran and he's going to continue to press that advantage. And so... These are the questions that uh, the administration, I think, is wrestling with. Thanks, Kenneth. And I want to come back to Elena because she, she spoke a bit about the Yemen crisis earlier. And, and you know, you know how, how is um, the U.S. policy towards Riyadh? I mean, at the start of, of, of uh, well, during President Biden's campaign, he, he labeled uh, Riyadh as, as a pariah state. And and and. I, I don't know if things have changed by now. And, and the fact that, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia has approached Iran for, for talks, you know, what, what can we say about, you know, and, and also the fact that the U.S. is, of course, its legislators are, of course, uh, concerned with its own political and moral liabilities when, when, it's, when it's linked to, to, to Riyadh. So what can we say about the relationship between, between the two countries, the U.S. and, and Saudis? Yeah, so I agree with you that it's been a little bit confusing because Biden came out of the gate very strong. Uh, and, you know, there were all sorts of little indicators that he was going to stay that way by saying, you know, I talked to King Salman, not the crown prince, you know, those kinds of little statements that right. that just sort of in, intimated that there was a different sheriff in town and policy and that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, the policy towards the Saudis hasn't been as strong as some of uh, the folks in DC would have liked, particularly people who are more on the left side of the political spectrum. Um, and they do feel as though the Biden administration has more had more bark than bite. Um, uh, and you know the the thing that the that the U.S. spends a lot of time talking to Saudi about is Yemen, and so the UN special or the U.S. rather special envoy Tim Lender King spends a lot of time in Riyadh talking to the Saudis, and and really the Saudis are a critical part of trying to figure out how to end the Yemen war, and so it has been sort of harder for the Biden administration, or they've chosen not to be as as tough as, like I said, some of the the folks, especially on the left side of Congress would have preferred. Um, and we'll just have to kind of see how that goes over the next couple of years. I certainly don't think anyone in the Biden administration is um, um, is enamored with the Saudis, right? Uh, but there is a view that they are a partner in the region and, and we need to maintain that and, you know, that kind of thing. And so there's a real kind of ideological tussle over sort of how to how to manage the Saudis. Um, uh, but the day to day doesn't look quite as tough as some of the folks on the left would have would have preferred it. I Ken might have some additional comments and not to not to call you out, but I think that you might he might have some thoughts on that as well. Yeah, Ken, do you want to uh, add on to what Elena has just said? Well, you know, I mean, Saudi, the Saudi leadership in particularly the crown prince is not particularly, uh, you know, popular right now in the United States government. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, I want to try to be diplomatic here, but, uh, you know, um, 
he's made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I think we have to admit that, you know, let's not forget, we've talked a lot about Yemen today. MBS, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman predicted that the, the Arab coalition would win uh, that conflict in three weeks. Okay, we are, we are now, you know, what, how, how many, six years? We're, we're now six years, it was 2015, I think that they went in. So we're now six years down the road. Uh, and I repeat uh, my earlier assertion that Saudi Arabia has essentially lost. And I think Ilana was uh, saying basically the same thing, that there's no easy way out and the Houthis are not gonna let them out very easily. And, you know, for Iran, this is a, they've got a strategic pincer movement going against their, their main enemy really in the region, Saudi Arabia, other than not talking about Israel for now, but in terms of the Gulf, Israel is their main, uh, I'm sorry, Saudi Arabia is Iran's main adversary and they've got Saudi Arabia surrounded. And of course, Saudi Arabia has started talks with Iran to try to calm tensions. And I think uh, that may work or it may not, but uh, you know, the crown prince, the Khashoggi affair, you know, no, nobody in Washington has forgotten the Khashoggi affair. That, that is not an issue that is going away anytime soon. Uh, there, there was MBS was not held to to account to any real degree, uh, you know. So, uh, I I would not expect MBS to be visiting Washington anytime. I'm not holding my breath waiting for a visit for MBS to Washington. I I really don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And there's still some just to throw in on this because you prompted an idea for me. There's still some outstanding issues, right? The the Mohammed bin Nayef. Uh, is still detained and there's a lot of US right. in mm -hmm, there's a lot of US intel officials who are very concerned about that and right. uh have these personal relationships with those folks and then there's right. um another Saad El Jabri who is in a lawsuit in the US and US officials are nervous about what might come out in court and so there's a lot of issues and let's not forget the the Saudi guys at Twitter that created a stirrup um you know, so so there's a lot of these issues that are still not entirely resolved. So I don't think the the MBS you know bad behavior issues are necessarily going to disappear from from the front pages forever. Um, and so yeah, so I still think it's a little bit of a, a tricky a tricky relationship. But Biden has definitely been a little bit uh, nicer, perhaps, to the Saudis than maybe some people expected. Well, I think the crunch is going to, sorry to interject, I think the crunch is going to come if the king dies, you know, in the very near, mm -hmm. when he dies, uh, he will die, and we don't know when, but, uh, and, and if MBS does <clears throat> accede to the leadership, that's going to cause a real dilemma for U.S. policy at that point, I think. Thanks, Kenneth. Thanks, Nina. Perhaps Dave would like to run off because you talked about weapons transfer just now, and of course, uh, the Gulf states, you know, are preoccupied and, and you know, almost obsessed with, with this weapons procurement. And 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 what can you say? I mean, in, in this Saudi-U.S. relationship, of course, President Trump was very personalized and transactional in his conduct of, of relations with with the Saudis. So, what can we, have we moved on from that kind of uh, you know uh, defense diplomacy, which I guess could supersede you know all other you know moral or humanitarian concerns in, in this file, Saudi yeah. US file. Well, believe it or not, I know it's not visible from the outside, but this is just because it's easier to measure. 
uh, weapons transfers. Uh, you know, they have to be reported. They're publicly available. Um, one of my rules of government is that the um, the trivial but quantifiable always trumps the vital but unquantifiable. And uh, uh, I can tell you that, uh, you know, in my time in government, you know, back in the uh, Obama administration, it was let's get, a, you know, let's focus on true capacity building. And even before, um, that's what this whole, you know, the counterinsurgency thing of the late Bush administration was all about, you know, focusing on human capital. And there has been a, a huge investment in that. My institution is part of it. But the bigger question, there's, there's sort of ungoverned rules in each administration. Um, you know, I started as a political appointee in the Clinton administration, and I worked on a task force to help the District of Columbia. The unspoken rule was Bill Clinton will not have a photograph taken with Marion Barry, <laughs> you know, who was the mayor of D.C. And you cannot find a photograph of Bill Clinton with Marion Barry. Um, the unspoken rule of this administration with every policy, we can find it in reaction to the attack on the tanker, is differentiate yourself from the Trump administration. Um, so, you know, the first thing Anthony Blinken says about the tanker attack is our response will be multilateral. That's that's that differentiation. The second issue is, as you said here, Mohammed uh, bin Sultan is um, he's he is uh, to be cast in the outer darkness because Trump was too close to him because of his individual misbehavior. Um, you know, the Khashoggi murder, I would argue, is the, the, the public one, because I mean, my God, you know, the guy was a columnist for the Washington Post, you know, um, you know, that that's never going to be allowed to die down. And then the second issue, and Elena touched on this is, um, and Kristen Fontenrose has really written on this, the only person to do it well, which is an entire generation of American intelligence assets were so vested in Mohammed bin Nayef. I mean, I remember going to reception for Mohammed bin Nayef and, you know, there were three current or former secretaries of Homeland Security, uh, you know, uh, Colin Powell, everybody was there because he was viewed to be the next king. And when he got cast aside, not only does that uplift your possibilities, but guys like John Brennan, you know, their professional Brennan. judgment is called into question. So it's just not going to die down. And quite frankly, I don't know how we get our way out of it, because at the end of the day, it looks like he's in charge and Saudi Arabia remains an important country. So some of this differentiation has from the Trump administration has painted the Biden administration into a corner and it's going to be hard to get out of there without I, I think what they're going to wind up doing is sacrificing their base, saying to guys like Chris Murphy, uh, who's been really beating the drum for this. All right. What are you going to do? Support Mitch McConnell? That's I'm sorry to get so into the U.S. Senate, but Murphy is. Uh, a senator from Connecticut who's been very um, focused on this issue. And uh, I think eventually, in the interest of real politic, uh, a real politic, uh, Biden will, will, will basically have to say, I need you to take one for the team and go along with us when MBS becomes king. Thanks, Dave. And, and uh, we've got another question from, from the floor from my colleague, Asif. And I think this, this question is, is inevitable. That would, that would have come up anyway. Uh, it's it's on on China and Russia, and, and of course, you know, as um, China has been dominating the news in terms of how President Biden is going to distribute his resources. So, so you know, how can we ex how how do you access assess the the presence of China and Russia in in the Middle East? That's number one, and number two, um, you know, would would a recalibration in U.S. policy, you know, uh, be also 
you know, uh, a way of calculating a ramping up in U.S. presence in the Indo-Pacific. So that's that's a two parts to that question. Perhaps Ken, you you would like to to take take this on first. Well, it's it's a difficult issue. I mean, I think the issue, what I would say about it is it gets wrapped up in other issues. I mean, the United States has been at odds with Vladimir Putin. I mean, I don't think that's a secret. And, and so the U.S. threatening, you know, let's say Qatar not to buy the S-400 or sanctioning Turkey not to buy the S-400. I mean, this is a function of not wanting Putin to... Uh, continue to encroach on U.S. prerogatives, not only in the Gulf, but elsewhere. Uh, it, it, it's a function of the U.S.-Russia relationship generally. It's not necessarily specific to the Gulf. I don't think there's a, necessarily a fear that, that Russia is all of a sudden going to displace the United States as, as a security guarantor in the Gulf. Um, there, there is nervousness, you know, about Russia-Iranian relations. I would say that I definitely see that on a daily, uh, hear about that on a daily basis. I mean, Iran and Russia basically has saved Assad's bacon in Syria. I mean, that's clear. And then there is discussion now that the UN embargo on weapons sales to Iran expired the last October. There, there is discussion of, uh, you know, a big Iranian potential weapons buy from, from Russia. Um, not that necessarily that's going to be decisive for Iran if they go ahead with it. They don't have much money to buy weapons. Russia demands cash. Uh, China, on the other hand, is willing to extend credit. So that may be an easier, easier supplier for somebody like Iran that doesn't have much cash. But China, you know, again, again, it gets wrapped up with U.S.-China relations. It's not specific to the Gulf. It's a broader syndrome, trade issues, you know, cyber attack issues, uh, South China Sea issues. It's not necessarily specific fear of China in the Gulf displacing the United States. It's a function of the overall U.S.-China relationship. Thanks, Ken. Uh, Elena? Um, I think China-Russia as just a broad question, um, you know, these are, I mean, they're, they're very different sort of uh, animals here. Um, uh, the, I can speak more to the, the China issues, uh, specifically in the Red Sea, you know, there's some concerns about um, China uh, ramping up its, its port and its base in Djibouti and sort of what that means. Right now, China benefits from the US security umbrella in the Gulf, which is exactly what we've been talking about in this conversation, uh, just in the sense that they don't have to provide a security umbrella for you know, oil shipments because the US does that. But the question mark, which this whole conversation is bringing up is does the US do that anymore? Um, and if the US no longer does that going forward, then who steps in to provide that umbrella? Is it the Gulf states themselves? Is it someone like China? Um, and it's not so simple as an answer like, oh, China will just step up and do that because that's not traditionally how China has operated at all. Uh, and there's other folks on this call that will know much more about this than me. Um, but I think those are the kinds of questions that people are sort of uh, looking at. I would add one more point just about China and you could throw in Russia to this conversation as well, as well as Turkey and lots of other countries. There's a perspective in the Gulf um, that uh, that all of these countries are options. 
uh, for business, for political arrangements, for security arrangements, et cetera, just whatever needs a Gulf state has, they have a lot of options these days to fulfill those needs. Um, and that's sort of a view that's up and coming in lots of parts of the world. And I think in the US, that's not the view. In the US, there's this view of China as a rival um, or even an enemy. And, and that's the sort of lens that's, that's coming out. And if you go to Asia or you go to the Gulf or you go to Africa, you find that that's not how people perceive China at all. Of course, they have concerns about China and debt, debt diplomacy and you know there's, there's issues, but there's also issues with the Gulf's ATM diplomacy and, and the US you know, uh, forcing you know, um, certain issues down people's throats as, as it was described to me when, when I was in, on a trip um, uh, in East Africa two years ago. So, so there's every country that, that someone might decide to work with has its upsides and its downsides. And what's happening, I think, in the sort of Arabian Peninsula sphere uh, is that countries are seeing lots of options. You know, if we need a telecoms network, or we want 5G, we can turn to the US for that, we can turn to China for that, we can turn to whoever for that, and we're gonna consider our options. And there's much more of a perspective that the future is a competitive future. So you start seeing Saudi and the UAE are competing on, on attracting business and that kind of thing. And that's how the Gulf states are describing the future is it's gonna be a competitive future. And when the East African states kind of come up they're going to join that competition. Um, and the US is still seeing things in I think a little bit more of a bipolar sort of lens, which is just not how the rest of the world is seen. And I'm actually curious from the perspective in Singapore, how people are seeing these sorts of things, but I'll leave that to, to you. Thanks, Elena. Dave, would you like to, to, to add on? Uh, I'll, I'll be briefly, look, um... Uh, the metaphor that Gulf officials use in security talks with Americans is Catholic marriage. Uh, for such a Muslim country, they, they have a fondness for Catholic marriage. And what they view that as is, is a lifelong commitment. It's, it's, a, uh, it's actually a, uh, they have a more positive view of it than most Catholics do. Um, and uh, they prefer, uh, I think, to be allied with the United States uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, a big one is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And I know that with the um, upgrade of the Saudi uh, Air Force, which was the biggest you know, $60 billion case in 2011, um, you know, they could have gotten more technology from other partners, but the king at the time was concerned. He didn't want a repeat of the El Yamana deal where a lot of people got rich uh, illicitly. Uh, so right. the United, and the fact that we do have the expeditionary capability to back up our, our word if, yeah. if it comes to that. China, is a sort of a stealth beneficiary of the US presence in the Gulf. Uh, you know, one of the paradoxes that the United States has never quite got, gotten her around is that people refer to China as a free rider on the US protecting the Gulf sea lanes that they then do to do it. It's a bad use of the term because free rider was originally designed for NATO ally partners <laughs> uh, who don't do this. And the paradox right. in American thinking is we complain that the Chinese benefit from our security of the Gulf. But if the Chinese were to say, okay, fine, we'll pay our own freight. Here goes our Navy to protect the Gulf. We'd, there'd be a collective aneurysm in the Pentagon. So, you know, we, we are capable of double think. Uh, Russia, on the other hand, is really a disruptor. Uh, you know, they, they have a lot of weapons. They're very active. 
Uh, but by and large, what they, they do, they appear on the scene to cause trouble uh, to, you know, when there's friction with the United States or with that, they're always there saying, hey, guys, we're easy to work with. Um, but they don't really have the ability for a long range presence. Um, when they talked about basing in Iran, uh, the Iranians shot that down instantly. Um, you know, look, their GDP is the size of Italy. So what can they do? Well, they can make, uh, you know, if we appear to deny them technology, then they can say, OK, well, we'll get this. When Senator Frist put a hold on Thad, uh, you know, the South, you know, MBS came to Moscow and said, oh, yes, we're going to produce S-400 domestically in Saudi Arabia. The next day, the hold was lifted. Um, you know, it's that spoiler disruptor role. Uh, outside of certain niche capabilities, I just don't see them having long term uh, role. Thanks, Dave. And, and while, while all three speakers were responding to, to my last question, uh, there was another question that comes in. So what happens What, what happens to Israel's place in all these? And, and we've seen also the Abraham Accords. So how do we fit this in, 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 in Biden's policy, foreign policy? So we come back to, let's go back to Ken with this. Well, as I said, I mean, you know, the Abraham Accords has brought really Israel into the Gulf. <laughs> Um, you know, people say America is a Gulf state. Well, you know, now now Israel is uh, to some extent a Gulf state. And actually, Israel was brought into the uh, maritime operation that was set up in uh, 2019 when there was uh, uh, Iranian attacks on tankers. The United States set up another maritime security operation and uh, reportedly Israel has some role in that. So Israel is in, you know, Go, moving more into Gulf affairs. Uh, the Abraham Accords obviously was a capstone of that. Uh, now, some of the Gulf states haven't followed suit and probably will not do so necessarily. But still, again, it, go, it goes to the idea of the United States and, and Israel viewing Iran as a an emerging major power. And Israel is, is called Iran's nuclear a potential Iranian nuclear weapon, an existential threat to Israel. The United States considers an Iranian nuclear weapon an existential threat. So the two have very common interests in, in keeping close watch on and deterring Iran. The issue is Israel opposes the Biden administration's trying to return to the Iran nuclear deal. And, and Israel has been conducting some attacks on Iranian nuclear facilities through proxies inside Iran, agents, Confederates inside Iran, they've attacked some Iranian nuclear facilities. If the United, if the Biden administration does get, and, and Iran do get back into the nuclear deal, full compliance with the nuclear deal, and Israel keeps attacking, then there's going to be strains between the United States and Israel over Iran. So, you know, all these variables are moving, there are a lot of moving parts to this dynamic, but just let's leave it at, you know, Israel views Iran as an existential threat and, is, and views attacking Iran and going hard at Iran as the only strategy available. The United States has a more complex view of the Iran threat than that. Thank you, Ken. And um, over to Elena. And before I let you have your uh, provide your remarks. I'd just like to mention that our Prime Minister, Prime Minister will be speaking at the Aspen Institute tonight, so, so you might want to know that. So yeah, over to you, Elena, on, on, on Israel. Uh, I think Ken mostly covered it. Um, 
I, I mean, I, I think that a lot of the Gulf states are wary about, you know, aligning themselves with Israel. So this sort of domino effect, you know, had a very short time window. And there were a number of countries that, that signed up, as we know. But, um, you know, Oman is not really interested at this stage and, and probably and doesn't want to be perceived as following other Gulf states. Um, you know, Kuwait has long said that they'll be the last one to do anything like this. And then the Saudis, it's just really complicated. So, you know, in part because the king is uh, has a different perspective than his son does on Israel-Palestine, which is part of a generational change. It's part of a bunch of different different things. We'll see what happens um, uh, uh, when, when King Salman um, passes on and, and the leadership passes on probably to MBS, but we'll see. Uh, and we'll see if that changes the Saudi policy. I mean, it would be a major shift if Saudi um, normalized normalized with Israel. Um, but I don't, I don't see a massive change on that front in the near term, unless of course there's a change in leadership in, in Saudi, but there's a lot going on sort of in the background. There's a there's a softening of policy, like allowing air flights occasionally, like things like that. So those are the kinds of indicators we're all sort of watching to see if there's some uh, major shift. But otherwise, I think Ken caught it uh, very well on the, the threat from Iran and understanding those types of issues. Thanks, Elena. Dave? Uh, so while we were talking, I, I went to the State Department website and Googled Abraham Accords and uh, recall my, my first unspoken rule of this administration, which is differentiate yourself from the past administration. As far as I can tell with my unscientific search on the state website, Anthony Blinken has only said Abraham Accords once as Secretary of State, and that was uh, in his first week in office in response to a direct question about Abraham Accords. So uh, I think that the administration kind of welcomes this, but they don't welcome the provenance of it. I mean, you know, it was Jared Kushner, you know, everything, you know, the guy was viewed as a punchline until he pulled that rabbit out of the hat. So I think what they're doing is taking a kind of wait and see approach. Does this go away? You know, there were multilateral uh, Israeli initiatives out of the Madrid Accords that withered away and died off in the second intifada. Will this go that way or will something good come of it? Um, I think that the, the administration is doing a wait and see approach, but I think that they welcome it. They just don't welcome the provenance of it. Um, so the uh, challenge, I think, will be, you know, can you build on it and how do you build on it moving forward? If it is just in response to the Iranian threat, I would argue that that will probably not be a very lasting agreement. Um, fortunately, Iran is, uh, 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 paradoxically, Iran is supplying no shortage of threat. Uh, so, you know, if, if that's the glue that binds this together, then uh, this, these institutions may be stronger. I think that I agree with Elena that um, a rapprochement with Saudi Arabia will have to wait for the next king. Um, if, if at all. Uh, so I'm not saying it will happen with the next king, but I'm saying it's unthinkable with this king. Uh, and I think that uh, it will be uh, technologically focused and focused on specific issues that are of mutual benefit written largely. And I think that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, writ largely. And I think that um, uh, a true, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're not like the European steel and coal community in 1947. This is not Jean Monnet and Robert Schumann. Uh, it's, it's much less temporary. So it remains to be seen whether this is a, a Catholic marriage, to go back to an earlier remark, a marriage of convenience or um, uh, a more fleeting liaison. 
Thanks, Dave. We've got another question for you, actually, from, from Joseph Tay from the floor. Um, the question is, to what extent is U.S. military operation and its procurement of weapons from the Gulf states a profitable national campaign? And, and I think that there's also an example of, of uh, President Obama suspending military assistance in 2013 and was restored two years later and found itself, you know, found France providing 40% of Egypt's weapons purchases. So your take. Yeah, good question. So um, I know this is this animates a lot of, uh, of thought and a lot of commentary, more commentary than thought uh, on the Gulf. Uh, it's important, the United States is not like other countries. So the first thing is most Western countries are their domestic defense uh, uh, uses are so small that unless they produce, unless they export weapons, they can't really produce weapons. Sweden, the Swedish Air Force is not big enough for Sweden to produce a fighter. They have to export in order to have that base. The United States doesn't have to export. So that's, that's point number one that differentiates us from those. The second point is, as I mentioned earlier, our government is not jointed up. So at the Department of Defense, the first official who has responsibility for maintenance of the defense industrial base and conduct of overseas policy is the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Um, so the Deputy Secretary and the Secretary are the only people in the Department of Defense who have responsibility for both those functions. Nobody on the Joint Staff has responsibility for maintenance of the defense industrial base. Um, uh, you know, they, they, they study it, but they don't have a, a policy role. So um, uh, it's not as jointed up as people think. People think, well, you know, you had a meeting, you had an arms sales, this was it. So that's point number one. Point number two is the demand signal exceeds the supply signal. Uh, people think it's the United States pushing stuff. It's actually them asking for stuff. We say no more than we say yes. Uh, the third point is, uh, you know, Trump was an exception. He was the first guy to actually say, oh, you know, look at all these jobs here. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, that's not normally a consideration uh, for bureaucrats, except in the broadest terms. We don't want this going to another country. But, you know, one of the concerns is that when you have, you know, things like uh, seizures of precision guided munitions, when we stop shipping PGMs to, to Saudi Arabia or uh, holding military uh, equipment going to Egypt while the Obama administration determines whether or not, you know, a coup took place. And I think their ultimate determination was uh, that they weren't required to determine if a coup took place because otherwise they'd have to suspend it. What that does is that causes our security partners to question the reliability of the United States, you know, saying, well, when we're in a moment of need, they might hold up weapons because women can't drive. And uh, so I think generationally, we will see a shift uh, where other countries will hedge their bets with uh, less discriminating weapons suppliers. Uh, and uh, it's not necessarily the Russians and the Chinese. So uh, I think it does do damage to us uh, as a weapons exporter. But I also think that the urge to export weapons, aside from what President Trump said, and he said a lot of smack, um, doesn't really animate our um, our day to day defense guidance from the American perspective. Thanks, Dave. Uh, we are running out of time, but I'd like to invite all our three speakers to, to give their closing remarks on this question. And I'd like to go back to, of course, the, the title of today's discussion, which, which is the Carter Doctrine. And, and as Dave mentioned in, in his introductory remarks, you know, he was given at the State of Union address, but he also mentioned in his speech, President Carter, 
that, you know, there were challenges in the decades, you know, before the Carter Doctrine was, was conceived. And he talked a bit about the 40s creating the Atlantic Alliance. He talked a bit about 50s Korea and Korea, 60s, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the 70s, the nuclear arms race. So I'd like to ask our speakers, the 2020s, what do you see the U.S.? What are the challenges for the U.S. in, in the Middle East you know, going forward for the 2020s? So Ken, we'll start with you. Well, I would just sum up uh, with what I've been, uh, I think, trying to communicate throughout the session is that uh, Iran is emerging as a very significant, very wily power that the United States has not really, what I would argue, hit on, hit on a strategy for how to counter it. Uh, you know, there are various options. Many of them have been pursued through successive administrations throughout uh, since the Islamic Republic was formed in 1979, and really none of them have really worked that that effectively. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal did contain Iran's uh, nuclear program temporarily, but then you know obviously a, a next administration felt it was unwise and and exited it. So. The, I think the United, 40 years later, you know, more than 42 years after the Islamic Republic was formed, the United States is still searching for a strategy. And now Iran is becoming progressively more powerful. So the Carter Doctrine, maybe it was, uh, dis, you know, buried, maybe it withered away, but now it, it could come back. But instead of the Soviet Union being the big threat, a, a Gulf power in the Gulf, Iran being the, the, the motivator for the United States to, to try to prevent a power from controlling the Gulf. So there's still some relevance to, to the thesis that the United States does not want any one other power to control the Gulf, uh, except the, the, the new threat is Iran in the Gulf, not the Soviet Union or China or some other power outside the Gulf. Thanks, Ken. Lena? Um, I think the thing to kind of keep an eye on is just how many players there are today in this sort of uh, soap opera that we're talking about. Um, so we used to just think of, you know, a bipolar world of the Soviet Union and the US and everyone else in the world was on one of those sides or the other or non-aligned. Um, and then we moved more towards, you know, Soviet Union collapsed and this kind of, um, I don't love this, these terms, but there's this kind of bipolar, unipolar, multipolar. And just before COVID, all of the conferences in the Gulf were called multipolar this and that. Yeah. And David, yeah. I think, went to one together. Yeah. Um, and they were in all the Gulf countries. I mean, you know, maybe not literally every single one, but there were several conferences in several Gulf countries and they all had the word multipolar in them. And that's really, I would just leave the audience with that perspective that you know, the UAE is a country to contend with these days. And so are the Saudis and so is Iran. And, and um, I mentioned the East African states might be coming up at, at some point and there's a lot more activity in that area because Ethiopia is this massive economy that folks would love to have both to, to import stuff to and potentially get exports from. Um, there's a lot of focus on ports because the economies in these um, in parts of the world that we used to think of as 
you know, kind of too poor to really contribute to the world economy. Well, that's just not really true anymore. Uh, and so there's just going to be a lot more players in the game. Um, David mentioned, you know, equipment coming from different places. I mean, you know, if Turkey isn't able to get airplane engines from the U.S., they're going to turn to some other country. And there's a lot of, you know, Eastern European states who are in the arms games. There's, um, there's a lot. So I just feel as though the, the, the world is just getting actually a little bit more complex. There's, a, there's more players and they all uh, have, um, you know, complex relationships with each other and they're, they're building out their bilateral relations. Uh, and so I think that's the kind of thing to watch going forward is not only what is the US doing and what is the US thinking, but also what are all the other states thinking and how are they perceiving the US? I mean, it just is becoming a much more complex sort of arena. Uh, and I think in the next 10 years, that's just going to continue. Thanks, Elena. Dave, you have the final word. So the number one security threat for the United States in the region is state fragility. Um, the, and, and everything we've talked about falls, falls into this. Uh, these were states that emerged rapidly that were buffered in large part by oil wealth and forged a social contract where, you know, in terms for political quiescence, uh, they were guaranteed certain benefits. States can no longer provide that. Um, you know, both because uh, the value of the oil relative to the population has decreased and also because expectations have risen. You know, people are like, well, you know, oh, great, I get to go to some local university. How come this guy gets to go to Harvard or Oxford? Um, and that ties into the Iran threat, because you look at where Iran has been successful uh, in exporting its revolution. It's been taking advantage of fragile states that are resource poor, unable to provide basic services that have substantial Shia majorities, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, uh, which became resource poor after the invasion in Yemen. So um, I think as expectations rise, as populations increase, and as the ability of states to, uh, you know, the, the oil well has become, it's no longer unlimited uh, wealth. I think we're going to see increased problems in state fragility. And of course, we're at that moment where people are being asked to pay income taxes, they're asking, you know, limited political participation. That's the danger moment. That's the reformist dilemma. When you initially open up, you may get something that you can't control. So state fragility. Thanks, Dave. So we have come to the end of our discussion for today. I'm afraid we're out of time. And I'd like to sincerely express my gratitude to all our three speakers for tuning in for such, at such an early hour in Washington, D.C. So thank you to all of you. And also, I I hope that you enjoyed our questions for, for today and I certainly enjoy your insights. So thank you to our audience as well for putting forward your questions and on behalf of the Middle East Institute here in Singapore, I'll see you next time, hopefully. Inshallah. Bye. Bye. Thank you.